0: You're listening to In Country, podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, the NOM. I'm your host, Tom Panneris, and this episode and issue I'm covering, which is the NOM number 35, will close out in 1968, which was probably the most tumultuous year of the decade, and that's reflected in the song that I chose this time around, which was Dion's Abraham, Martin, and John. The song itself went as high as number four on the Billboard Hot 100 toward the end of 1968 and was written in direct response to the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, both of which took place earlier in the year. Incidentally, it marked the departure for Dion, whose early career was with his group Dion and the Belmonts, and I'm sure that most people know the song Run Around Sue. The song was also a departure for the songwriter and producer Dick Holler and Phil Gernhardt, whose most notable song up to that point was the 1966 novelty hit Snoopy vs. the Red Baron. Our story this time around is called Sounds of Silence, a title obviously taken from another song, The Sound of Silence, by Simon and Garfunkel. Our book was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Wayne Van Zant, inked by Jeff Isherwood, lettered and colored by Phil Felix, Don Daly is the editor, Larry Hama is back to being listed as consultant, and Don- Tom DeFalco is the editor-in-chief. The issue came out on June 27, 1989. It was cover dated October 1989, according to Mike's Amazing World. The cover is by Wayne Van Zant, and it shows ice firing a gun while Daniel's radios for help. The title of the cover is saying, Reach Out and Touch Someone, which is takeoff from a very famous phone company jingle of the time.
1: You've made some new friends who live far from you, And keeping them close is so easy to do. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Reach out, call up and just say hi.
0: Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Don't let those new friends get away. A telephone call now and then will bring them closer. They're waiting to hear from you. So reach out and touch someone. Give them a call. We open up in December of 1968 in Vietnam, somewhere near the Cambodian border. As one group of men talks, another slips by. The men talking are those of the 23rd, who are complaining about it being so close to Christmas and being stuck humping the boonies. The men are slipping by are the enemy, who are making their way through the jungle. We see our boys some more. We're four African-American soldiers. They're sitting around passing what looks like a joint and complaining about Whitey. No, I'm not kidding. They actually do use the word Whitey. Anyway, they talk about how Whitey's got too much invested in the war, and then one of them disappears. Another asks another of them, Williams, what it was like in his old unit, and Williams is about to tell him, and it, well, that's when another guy disappears. Williams is talking about some nut job lieutenant he had when they were in Quang Gai Province, and he realizes that both Jones and Scott, who are the other two guys who's talking to, the other guys he's talking to, are gone. He then notices that the enemy troops are there and he's spotted. But before the enemy can react, Pig appears from the brush and starts firing. He then tells the guys to get their butts in gear and clean up the mess nearby martini biggs and ice hear the gunshots and ice recognizes it is pig's m60 martini when the moment is right detonates the claymores and the claymores take out the nva front pig and his men mop up in the rear he yells at them to pour it on and don't let up soon it's over and biggs congratulates everyone on doing a good job ice asks pig what really happened and pig says it's pretty much what ice figures charlie was going right by and they got lucky Pigs looks at the four guys who were hanging out at the beginning of the firefight, Scott, Jones, Bacon, and Williams, and says that Ice should let them straighten them up. Pigs looks at the four guys who were hanging out at the beginning of the firefight, Scott, Jones, Bacon, and Williams, and says that Ice should let him straighten them up. As Ice and Pig talk, Biggs tells Daniels to get them a ride, and Williams says, Yeah, fat boy, do something for a change. Daniels starts to say something, but Ice quiets him down. He then notes how Williams is a real pain, and Pig says he'll handle Williams. The chopper comes, and later Pig is in the barracks, reaming the four of them for the carelessness that nearly got them all killed. Williams isn't having it and insists that he wasn't doing anything. The conversation is interrupted because the lieutenant wants to see him. Williams says something about Pig working for the man, and Pig says they'll finish this later. Minutes later in the officer's hooch, Biggs sets down with Pig and says that Pig should be promoted. Pig tells him that the thing getting in the way is the fact that he never graduated high school. Biggs says that, that if that's all that's stopping him, then he can fix it and offers Pig a study guide for the GED. And as pig reaches for one type of education back in the world at Columbia University, hundreds stream away from another, putting their books aside to start their Christmas vacation. One such student is Ed Marks, who is walking across campus and runs into Franklin, the photographer from way back in issue number four, who forgot to load his camera. Franklin admits he was lying about that, and he got it all onto the six o'clock news. He then goes with Marks to a diner for a cup of coffee. He wants to know about the twenty third and asks specifically about a town called Milai. Ed's not familiar with the town. Franklin says it's somewhere near Quang Nai, and Marx mentions that it was way out of their AO. But you were the twenty third division, Franklin asks. Marks explains, Ah, there's your problem. I was in the 23rd Infantry Brigade, part of the 25th Infantry Division. You're looking for the 23rd Division, the AmeriCal. That's a whole nother unit. Franklin apologizes for the mix up and mentions that he has heard something nasty went down in Milai and thought that Ed might be able to help him out. They part ways and wish one another a Merry Christmas. Back in the NAM, the day before Christmas dawns, Cruz wakes all of them up and says that Bob Hope is going to play a USO show today and they're going. Williams complains about it being white bread city, and Pig tells him to be quiet so they can get there and get it over with. A short while later, as the 23rd arrives at the makeshift auditorium, the place is packed and the reactions range from excited to annoyed. Pig takes the opportunity to study while Williams complains and Daniels uses his binoculars so he can get a good look at Bob Hope. Bob Hope does his bit, and Margaret then comes out on stage. Daniels is so excited, and he stands up, much to William's chagrin, as he says, Get your smelly butt out of my face, white boy, before I kick it. Why don't you try it, Williams asks Daniels. They almost do get into a fight, but Pig breaks it up and tells him to sit down and watch the show. Cruz and Ice talk about how they have a problem here, but Ice says to give Pig some time to figure things out. And as the men of the 23rd settle back in to see what they can see of the show, back in the world, Ed Marks and his dad watch the Bob Hope show on television. Ed's dad asks him if he's ever gone to one of the shows, and Ed says no, but it must be really cool to see those stars so up close and personal. Two things stick out for me in this issue. The first is the Bob Hope appearance, and it makes sense. USO shows are a staple of our military operations, and for years, Bob Hope was the mainstay of the USO shows. I like how some of the guys are really excited and some aren't, it's divided along racial lines, something I'll get into in a moment. The Mean Lie Massacre is the other thing that's mentioned. I'll get in-depth when it comes to the actual events and the historical context portion of this episode, a little more than I did last episode, where I mentioned it as well. But the way Murray has Ed Marks explain to Franklin the difference between his 23rd and the other 23rd makes me wonder if he put it in there as a response to people who were writing in. Those of us who are not familiar with the way armed forces are structured might be confused when we hear that the My Massacre was conducted by a quote 23rd, and yet there is little to no mention of, the pa- of it in the pages of these comics. So this is really a break for a little bit for a history lesson, while at the same time it's a way to catch up with Ed, who is attending college at Columbia. I also have to wonder if Murray deliberately put Ed at Columbia because this was one of the more volatile college campuses in the late nineteen sixties also has one of the better journalism schools in the country. And I know Ed at one point did say he was looking to be a journalist. So this gives him a way to further Ed's education properly, I guess, and it gives him a way to show unrest on the home front when it becomes relevant. I mean suppose he could I suppose he could have put marks at Berkeley or just had him go to San Francisco. But I think it would have been too obvious to be honest. Maybe it's just my East Coast bias showing. Who knows? As for the story itself, it's another good one. I like that Murray is starting to develop another subplot, this time involving potential racial tensions among the troops. One of the most important things that happened in the late 1950s and throughout the 1960s was the Civil Rights Movement, and it obviously affected the troops fighting overseas. I know that I chuckled at the use of the word whitey because it's not really widely used today but murray has been doing his best to be accurate and getting across the look and the feel of the late 1960s so i trust that this was one of the more widely used or at least words or at least a word that was taken more seriously at the time daniels is definitely developing as a character from an annoyance to well i haven't exactly formed a new opinion on him but i like that we're starting to see him in a different light I will say that I kind of miss Clark and Rubino, however. Perhaps they'll show up again in the future. The action is good as well. Van Zant and Isherwood are completely gelling at this point, and Murray has gotten back into the groove of showing us action that doesn't seem like it's forced, especially when it could be, because he seemed to feel, from reading the letter column, that he had an action mandate. For each issue, the opening sequence has a great feel to it with the urgency of the attack coming across in things like Pig's sweat and the close up shots of the men before we get to that one splash page of the battle's aftermath. Pig, by the way, continues to be a great character, and whereas he and Ice seem like almost caricatures or stereotypes when they first came on, they've developed nicely over these last 20 issues or so. I'm curious to see how his education plays out. So that's it for the issue. I'm going to take a break. And when I get back, I'll have historical notes, letters, and ads. This is Tokyo, once a city of six
1: million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still
0: prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world.
1: then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at two twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality.
0: There's not much specifically to the Vietnam War for December of 1968, at least what I could find in my crack attempt at research. So I'll have another couple of events here before I go in depth about more specific things that are mentioned in this issue. On December 3rd, we have the Elvis Presley 68 comeback special on television. December 20th marks two killings from the infamous Zodiac Killer in San Francisco, a case that has never been solved. December 22nd marks the beginning of the quote up the mountains and down to the villages movement of re-educating youth in China under Mao Zedong, which I believe was part of the Cultural Revolution. December 24th is incredibly important because it marks the day when Apollo 8 orbits the moon for the very first time. This would be the first time that anyone has orbited the moon and the first time that human eyes saw the dark side of the moon. It would also give us the very famous photograph known as Earthrise, a shot of the Earth from the moon. And I'll post the picture in the show notes. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous picture. So on to the war, specifically on to the My Lai Massacre. Like I said, I I, I mentioned this uh, a little bit Yet a last issue, when we were looking at a phoenix. And I'll go try to go a little bit more in-depth this time around, too. It's quite possibly the most infamous event of the war, as it involved the massacre of hundreds of Vietnamese villagers by United States troops. The United States puts the body count at 347, and the Vietnamese government puts the body count at 504. The massacre took place on March sixteenth, nineteen sixty eight, and was led, as I mentioned last episode, by Lieutenant William Calley and perpetrated by the Americal Division, which was part of the twenty third Infantry Division, as Ed Marks explained earlier in this issue. The massacre took place in two villages in the, in the Quang Nai Province, Mi and Mi Kei. The area at the time, which is about 100 miles north of Da Nang, was known to the troops as Pinkville, and the Pinkville Massacre was an early name given to the episode. It would later go on to become known as the My Lai Massacre. The operation itself was not intended to be what it eventually became. This was essentially a typical sweep of a village for Viet Cong and other enemy operatives, which we've seen time and again in the comic. Being that this was March of '68, this was during the Tet Offensive, when such operations were being conducted a little more aggressively in the hopes of putting an end to the VC's operations in the area. Callie and his troops entered the area at about 0800, and while they did encounter some fire while landing near the village, they seemed to take the villagers by surprise because they were those people were getting ready for a regular market day. According to reports, most of the killings started without warning and involved indiscriminate killing of just about everyone. The Wikipedia page in the Muli Massacre is pretty extensive and gives a full rundown of what happened, and this includes a description from PFC Michael Bernhardt. I walked up and saw those guys doing strange things, setting fire to the hooches and huts, waiting for the people to come out, and then shooting them, going to the hooches and shooting them up gathering people in groups and shooting them. As I walked in you could see piles of people all through the village all over. They were gathered into large groups. I saw them shoot an M70, M79 grenade launcher into a group of people who were still alive, but it was mostly done with a machine gun. They were shooting women and children just like anybody else. They met no resistance and I saw only 3 captured weapons. We had no casualties. It was just like any other Vietnamese village, old papasans, women and kids. As a matter of fact, I don't remember seeing any one military age male in the entire place dead or alive. The massacre was stopped by Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson Jr. and his helicopter crew, who spotted massive numbers of dead bodies and intervened. He also reported the incident almost immediately, and he and his crew were eventually given medals for their honesty. However, the Army was not so honest. The Army initially described the incident as a military victory that resulted in the deaths of 128 military combatants, and a cover-up began, including investigations into the incident by the Army, including one by Colin Powell, who was part of the Americal division months after the fact. And these investigations were criticized as, quote, whitewashing the events of Me Lai. Quite a number of congressmen ignored what was going on as well, because that what was happening was that people who were either there or who knew the truth about what had happened were writing letters to superior officers and congressmen and asking them to investigate the matter. It wasn't until November 12, 1969, when Seymour Hirsch, a journalist who interviewed Callie, broke the story for the Associated Press. Time and Newsweek picked it up about a week later, and that led to a more serious investigation. Eventually, 14 soldiers were put on trial, with the most notable being Callie himself, who was sentenced to life in prison, but... had that sentence reduced by President Nixon, who made the decision to put Calley on house arrest pending an appeal. As I mentioned last episode, Calley eventually only served one house arrest. He is still alive, and in 2009 made his first ever public apology at a speech to the Kiwanis Club of Greater Georgia, saying, There is not a day that goes by that I do not feel remorse for what happened that day in Mila." I feel remorse for the Vietnamese who were killed, for their families, for the American soldiers involved, and their families. I am very sorry. If you're asking why I did not stand up to them when I was given the orders, I will have to say that I was a second lieutenant getting orders from my commander, and I followed them foolishly, I guess. On a personal note, I first learned about My Lai in 11th grade social studies class, and I remember it being one of the first times I truly saw the darker side to a war like the one in Vietnam. Having seen a few movies about the war, I knew that it wasn't the type of historical event that I'd pretend to be in with my friends or use my action figures to reenact, but when I was 10 or 11, I didn't fully grasp the whole reason why Vietnam was such a heavy topic. Our discussion of American foreign policy during the Cold War and the war in Vietnam in my 11th grade social studies class really clued me into how complicated the history of the war is and how, well, let's, not just how human soldiers can be, but how even our own soldiers, the quote good guys in a war, can succumb to the darker aspects of human nature and something that's stuck with me through the years. And I have my 11th grade social studies teacher, Mr. Gerbino, to thank for that. I think it's important. I think it's important to know about Mi Lai when you're discussing Vietnam. Not to condemn the people who were, who are, uh, well, you know, the soldiers who actually committed the atrocities deserve, deserve to be condemned, but it's not a way to condemn the entire United States Army. It just clues you in as to why the American public had such a hostility toward what was going on over there, and in some cases I think returning troops. You know, we're a very, very fickle society. We have a tendency to change our opinion about something based on one or two stories, no matter how accurate or inaccurate they are. We also have a tendency to stereotype. So it makes perfect sense that someone who is anti-war, unsure about the war to begin with, would see a story like me lie and begin to associate all the US troops with the massacre, no matter what their role in the armed forces was at the time. It's not right. Just as uh, you know, committing those things isn't right. You know, assigning one thing to all the people there isn't right because there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of different people involved in the war. But this, I think, is is what happened in in a lot of cases. There are plenty of books, websites, documentaries, other sources about Mila that you could check out if you want a more in depth look than the one I just provided here. Uh, A good piece of fiction surrounding it, an author we've already looked at once, Uh, Tim O'Brien wrote a book called In the Lake of the Woods, which is an excellent, excellent piece, character piece about a man who uh, was there but kind of erased the fact that he was, and really, really good piece of fiction. So In the Lake of the Woods, check that out. And if you go through Amazon, go through 2 you'll be helping out uh, some friends of mine. There's no letter column this month, so uh, I'm going to go right into the ads. We have, when you think of hits, think of Tengen, which shows the same, uh, shows Gauntlet, RBI Baseball, Tetris, Super Sprint, and Pac-Man for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And, and Tetris, which is funny, like I said, a, uh, an episode or two ago, was big on the Game Boy and was big on the NES, but the Nintendo version, not this Tengen version. So, But this, I think, came out first. Uh, we have Operation Wolf from Taito. We have the same Sears catalog. Order your Nintendo ad. The same Bubble Bobble ad. We have an ad for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the video game, the the uh, first video game that came out from Nintendo from Ultra Games. There's a shot of Raphael climbing out of a sewer manhole into your living room, and it says, turn your house into a sewer. And we all know by now how freaking impossible this game was, how much it made you hate life and hate video games and want to die and want to take your Nintendo out to the back and reenact that scene from office space. Just Trust me on this. That stupid water level. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. The Westfield Company uh, still has this great-looking Art Adams Wolverine ad. We have a page with two ads on it, and the bottom is the The Greatest in Comic Book Conventions, which... Is still, uh, still in the, the tri-state area. But above that, you have now you can be Indiana Jones. Play the Indiana Jones Interactive Telephone Adventure Games. Choose from six games with great indie collectible prizes. Yeah, I forget. This was like the height of the 1-900 number, this late 80s, early 90s. Granted, most of the 1-900 numbers out there were be, being used for phone sex, but um, but there were quite a number of like, play this game or vote for this or vote for that. Uh, being used at the time. This, the bullpen bulletins is exactly the same as it was last issue, as is the prizes for cash. There is an ad for Atlantis Attacks, which was the Marvel Annuals crossover from 1989, showing the covers of the West Coast Avengers Annual number no. 4, the Mighty Thor Annual number no. 14, and the Fantastic Four Annual number no. 22 uh there is an advanced dungeons and dragons players handbook it says your toughest opponent shouldn't be the rule book and on the back we have the konami blades of steel double dribble and track and field 2 ad ads have been repeating a lot lately which doesn't make for too much of a fun ad section of the podcast but what are you going to do but That is it uh, for this time around. Thank you very much. Come back in two weeks. We will take a look at the NOM number 36. Until then, thank you for listening and take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The NOM. The nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email. to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com in Country Podcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the DeMonza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.